You're listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast. Here's the deal. If you make disciples by sitting around and talking, you shouldn't be surprised when your disciples sit around and talk and talk and talk. This is the podcast for those weary of just talking and ready to start activating in the mission Jesus gave us to change the world. The Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast, where disciples and disciple makers gather to grow and go together. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Hey folks, good to have you with us today. Remember now, the place for a man, for a woman, completing all their powers is in the fight and right here on this broadcast today, this podcast today. Stay tuned, stay encouraged. We have a rendezvous with destiny. All right, folks, uh, I, I, last time we were together, uh, I told you I'm an old talk show host. So one of the things I kind of like to do is just throw some things out there, talk about talk about them a little bit, and eventually we head to the subject for the day. And the subject for the day is simply going to be this. We, uh, we are a technological culture, no question about it. I mean, can I, can I tell you the truth here? The inventor of the microchip uh, grew up in a house right across from my house in my old hometown of Kansas. A guy named Jack Kilby, inventor of the microchip, the integrated circuit, they called it. And uh, so all this technology stuff happened, started in my hometown. So, you know, I don't know, feel some culpability here or something or not. I don't know. But the whole point is technology in front of your kid's face. Beware. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. Also got an interesting column from the Atlantic called The Great Resignation. It is accelerating and a very benefit. It seems like beneficial outcome of the last election we had in this country at the top of November. So we're going to get to all that here in just a moment, but we'll do so right after this. One of our sponsors of our program today is Teleos Press. Lots of really great books at teleospress.com. Now, Teleos is the Greek word for whole, complete, perfect. It's spelled T-E-L-E-I-O-S, T-E-L-E-I-O-S. OS. You need to know that Greek word. Again, whole, complete, perfect. You can go to teleospress.com for a lot of wonderful volumes, including the 5Q method of discipleship, which will teach you about how to be a serious disciple maker for Jesus. So check it out at teleospress.com. All right, uh, let's get to some of our issues for the day. Uh, the Atlantic, again, put out an interesting column called The Great Resignation. It is accelerating. And they talked about last April, the number of workers who quit their job in a single month broke an all-time U.S. record. Economists called it the Great Resignation, but America's quitting spirit was just getting started. In July, even more people left the job. In August, quitters set yet another record, and that Great Resignation, it just keeps getting bigger, greater. People quitting their jobs. So I, I was reading through this thing, got down to the last couple of paragraphs, which is what I'm going to read to you right now. One way, says the Atlantic, to capture the meaning of any set of events is to consider what it would mean if they all happened in reverse. Imagine if quits, like people quitting the job, fell to nearly zero. Business formation declined. In lieu of the urban exodus, everyone moved to a dense downtown. It would be, in other words, a movement of extraordinary consolidation and centralization. Everybody working in urban areas for old companies that they never leave. Look at what we have instead. A great pushing outward. Migration to the suburbs accelerated. More people are quitting their jobs to start something new. Before the pandemic, the office served for many 
as the last physical community left, especially as church attendance and association membership declined. But now even our office relationships are being dispersed. So the great resignation is speeding up and it's created a centrifugal movement in American economic history. Everybody headed out, in other words. Well, that's interesting and and not all negative. But y'all, this whole thing that the pandemic has caused, particularly in the workplace, uh, there's a lot of histories. They call economic history is what the Atlantic is worried about. But how about relationship history? Because I got the funny feeling that there's a lot of lonely people out there, more lonely than they've ever been before because of what has happened to the workplace. I think this has impacted, as well you know, work history. Uh, we're all of a sudden not feeling the great need to work necessarily or work on our own time in our own way. Now, that's not all negative either. But I got to tell you, don't play around with work, y'all. The first thing we know about God, in the beginning, God created. And it says not too long after that, and he rested from his work of creation. The first thing we know about God is that he's a working God, and we're made in that image. We need, we need to be a working people. It's important that we work. It's important for us. It's important to God. And I don't think we ever want to get to the point where we discount work. It's one of the things I worry about with the whole, uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting older. Everybody's getting older. I'm getting old enough to see a, a lot of people around me starting to say, hey, it's time to retire. I'm thinking, whoa, wait, wait retire? You got a lot, a lot of life left. Yeah, you, you got a lot of energy left. You got a healthy body. What are you talking about? Retire. And people, I don't know, this whole work thing is important to us. So if you're going to retire, go retire to some work somewhere. Go work for the kingdom. Uh, go work in the harvest fields. Uh, go, uh, I'm talking spiritually speaking. Yeah, well, there are other ways to speak about it too. But go, if you're going to retire, say, I'm going to, I'm going to take a break from this job so I can go do another job and work hard the rest of my life. I want to be sweating on the day I die. That's just not how we conceive our lives, is it? I think this whole pandemic thing has affected not only economic history, but relationship history, work history. Uh, undoubtedly, most people listening to this podcast, you're interested in the church. Has it impacted your church at all? And every one of us can say, yep, it sure has. And I got this funny feeling that 20% of the people that left aren't coming back. Economic history is one thing, relationship history, work history, church history. Just imagine, y'all, what could happen if we said it's time for us to really reflect on what's gone on in the last couple of years in this country and then decided to take, uh, shall we say, measures to return to all the people we were ever meant to be in Christ Jesus. And that is to say, yeah. We're concerned about economic history, but we're much more concerned about relationship, work, and church history. And we want to make sure that when people look back at these couple years, that they will say, you know, they stumbled there, but they came back hard. And uh, the relationships thereafter were stronger than ever before. Uh, the workplace thereafter was stronger and better than ever before. And the church was stronger and better than it ever was before. Now, I'm going to tell you right now. For that to happen, it will take a miracle. And I think we need to start praying for that miracle. I do. Now, we just had an election, interesting election. 
some interesting things happened, for instance, in uh, Virginia and other places in the country. But uh, one of the interesting places they had an election was Minneapolis. Now, you know, they've uh, struggled up there with this whole uh, police thing, p- police brutality. And boy, people were so mad after all that happened. And it didn't just happen there, but other places. And the, uh, people looked around, and said, we got to We got to change some things here. And so one of the things that some of people wanted to change was to abolish the police departments. And so they, they put it to a vote. To me, this was a whole lot closer than it should have been. But nonetheless, by a vote of 57 to 44%, Minneapolis voters rejected a ballot initiative that would have abolished, abolished, it was actually on the ballot, abolish the Minneapolis Police Department and replace it with a Department of a Public a Safety. And uh, question two, it was called, would have changed the city charter to remove a requirement that the city have a police department with a minimum, minimum number of officers. It called for the creation of that new department to take a comprehensive public health approach to the delivery of functions that would have been determined by the mayor and city council. Uh, Listen, it got defeated, 57 to 44. To me, again, the vote was way too close. I remember when this whole thing started. And people were down, down, down on the police. Uh, I have a church. I stood up. I, we don't like to get political at our church. We try not to. But I stood up and said, listen, we believe in the people of this nation called the police. And no way do we want to back off and say somehow we need fewer of them. <laughs> I mean, I, I live in one of the most dangerous capital cities in the nation. It may well be the dangerous Jackson, Mississippi. It's a dangerous place y'all. And I live in Jackson proper. And uh, boy, you hear all these, it's so bad that the uh, police chief doesn't want to put out uh, the statistics and they found a way not to put them out in the last, uh, in the last several months. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, it's so bad. There's nobody around here saying, you know, at the end of the day, we uh, we really don't need police around. Everybody around here that I know about saying, "Whoa, uh, when are we finally going to hire a hundred more than people?" We we need more. Uh, you you don't want to see what your culture is going to look like without police. You do not want to know. And so, uh, a big salute to all you police officers, particularly you who are listening to this broadcast right now. You're loved. You're prayed for. We appreciate you. As far as we're concerned here at Life Changing Discipleship, you are heroes. Now, I can say that of a lot of different professions. That doesn't mean every police officer is a hero. We know. We know. We get it. There's some bag eggs out there. No question about it. There's There's some evil people who are police officers. But on the whole, we think you're doing a good job for your communities. You do it at very little pay. We get that. You do it. Uh, you, you strap on danger every day. And we just want to thank you for doing it. Now, let's get to, uh, let's get to technology. Uh, you know, we've written a book called Discipleship in the Home. And in that book, one of the things we talk about is uh, technology. But really, it was a TV chapter. And we start off the chapter saying uh, with this quote, I would never let my children even come close to this thing. That quote is from Vladimir Kosma Zorkin, who's a Russian-born inventor of a television set. Then on his 92nd birthday, 
He said, no way. <laughs> no way. Maybe your kids, not mine. Now, I think most of us could say, yeah, it kind of resonates that. I mean, we all have TV sets, right? I mean, every, every, everybody has a TV set and most of us have two or three. I remember I was in one church. I said, listen, uh, everybody hold up your hand. If you got at least one set in your house, they said, now pull them down. If you got, uh, only one. And so I, I, I start, I start ratcheting up the number. And if you still had that many sets in your house, just keep your hand up. I went all the way two, three. Four, some hands start coming down. Now, it was kind of a rich area of town, so get get that. These are people of means. But I went all the way up to number 20, and there was a hand up. And finally, he took his hand down, came up to me afterwards, and said, I'm so, so, so embarrassed. Because as you were talking here, I started counting. I, I, 27. We have 27 television sets. I thought, great, Scott. Like, in every room of the house? He said, yep, every room. I thought to myself that we don't have the TV set. The TV set has us. Oh my goodness. 27. Are you, are you kidding me? Jerry Mander, who's a former advertising executive and author said, you know, I'm learning that people can hate a lot of television. They can hate their own viewing habits. They hate what it does to them and they hate what it does to their families. Nevertheless, we think it's bizarre that anybody wants to get rid of it. And indeed, almost nobody wants to get rid of it. We love our television sets. So I'm just going to tell you, y'all, you need to get rid of your television set. Now, when I say that, <laughs> I, get, I get it. You won't. You're not going to get rid of your television set. Uh, I got a lot of women that say, you know, I, I, I'd love to get rid of the television set. My, my husband would never let us do that. He's too into sports. What we're really saying is we're addicted to the television set. What we're really saying, a lot of men are saying, Hey, and I'm addicted to, uh, to sports, to watching it on TV. I would never get rid of it. Never know. I'm just going to say one day in college, and this is many, many years ago, several decades ago, when I was in college, I, uh, I had some kind of religious significant thing happen in my life. I'm not going to tell you what it was kind of silly. Now that I think about it, it came actually from music. Yeah, it's all good. I was listening to Keith Green. And there was something in one of those songs that said, hey, Matt, go into your house. And I, he, did, he didn't say this. I just heard it by the spirit. Go into your house, go into your apartment, and get rid of anything that looks to be even close to sin. So I went into my house, and I first thing I saw was my television set. And we got rid of it. Uh, we've never had a television set since then. The Freedom and Family has never had a set. Uh Having said that, uh, I think it's been really good for our kids not to have a television set. They read more. Uh, you know that the television, I don't have the data in front of me right now, but the television set radically changes the way your brain works and your attention span. It has you know, a whole bunch of things that we probably ought to be paying attention to when we recognize television is bad bad, bad for your brain and horrifically bad for your child's brain. You need to get rid of it. I'm, I'm telling you right now, if you got kids in the house, get rid of the thing. Now I say that knowing full well, you won't. But boy, if you could ever do it. And uh, so we wrote this chapter in the book, Discipleship in the Home. And some people actually were crazy enough to go do that. And when they did it, they would 
report back either a week later or a month later or a decade later and talk about the difference it made in their family, the holy difference it made in their family. Now, we got other problems now as well, you know. We got computer games and uh, we got computers for starters. I mean, the internet, all kinds of things that our kids have in front of their faces. And I'm just going to suggest to you, it would be wonderful if you could get those things out of your kids' faces. The recent technology coming out of Silicon Valley, oh my word, it, it has a horrible internal reputation. You say, what internal reputation? What's that? I mean, Silicon Valley. It's well known that the two biggest innovators in modern history regarding computer and phone technology, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, seldom, seldom let their kids play with the very products they help create. Which, of course, gives rise to the question, what do they know? What did they know that we apparently haven't been convinced of concerning their own products? And by the way, they're not alone. Many prominent CEOs of technology companies dramatically limited their own kids' use of the newest phones and computers and games. It's rather interesting that some specialty schools in the tech pockets of California are saying, hey, you know, it's so bad. We want a school that's low tech. We want a school that likes chalkboards and number two pencils and building things and attending classes in tree houses. <laughs> yeah, there's actually a school out there that says, hey, get up there in that tree. Let's learn up there. Again, what do they know that we ought to know? First, these technology giants seem to approach the matter practically. And by the way, we disciple makers should too. Not primarily, not primarily, but we should always first, for instance, consider God's word. I remember this out of the Psalms. It's Psalms 101. I will walk in my house with blameless heart. I will set before my eyes no vile thing. Now, some parents will assert that it's all well and good because they don't let their children watch vile things. Well, that might be true, but vile can refer to more than merely content. Now, with this whole advent of the wide-scale use of the internet and smartphones and, oh my word, just all these things that we have now, there's little difference, they say, between Christians and pagan parents, secular parents, non-believing parents, when it comes to the regulation of this technology in our own or in our children's lives. And that's really a pity. This is what Steve Jobs said. New York Times reporter asked Steve Jobs, how his children love the new iPad? They haven't used it. He replied, we, we limit how much technology our kids use at home. Y'all, that's Steve Jobs. How about your house? Melinda Gates, you remember, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates have now broken up, but uh, at this point they were together. And she said, phone and apps aren't good or bad by themselves, but for adolescents who don't have the emotional tools to navigate life's complications and confusions, they can exacerbate the difficulties of growing up, learning how to be kind, coping with feelings of exclusion, taking advantage of freedom while exercising self-control. And thus they limited their kids' time on these things. Chris Anderson former editor of Wired and now CEO of uh, uh, robotics and drone company called 3DR, said, you know, my, my kids, my kids accuse me and my wife of being fascist. <laughs> fascist and overly concerned about tech. And they say that none of their friends had the same rules. That's because we've seen the dangers of technology firsthand. 
He says, I've seen it in myself. and I don't want to see it happen to my kids on the scale between candy and crack cocaine. It's closer to crack cocaine. Yeah, that's the thing that's coming over your iPhone. The information that's coming through your internet. Chris Anderson says on the scale of candy and crack cocaine, it's closer to crack. Sean uh, Parker's Napster founder and former Facebook president says, you know, the thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them was, how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? God only knows, God only knows that Sean Parker, what it's doing to our kids' brains. By the way, y'all know Apple CEO, Tim Cook. He said, you know, I don't have a kid, but I have a nephew that I put some boundaries on. And there are some things that I won't allow. I don't want them on the social networks, period. It just goes on and on here. Quote after quote after quote. These people in Silicon Valley know what they're doing to America. They know what they're doing. And they're quite happy that you all do it to your kids. They don't want it done to theirs. So this whole thing of excessive compulsion, you start using it, you can't quit. It's called addiction. Silicon Valley succeeded in building a significant addiction that absolutely takes up our time. I mean, snarfs it up. By the time a senior graduates from high school, by the way, th- this book is uh, by a lady named Jean Twenge. It's called iGen. Why today's super connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood. I, Jen, go get the book. But she says, by the time a senior graduates from high school, they are texting on their phones well over two hours a day. Another two hours on the internet. One and a half hours daily on electronic gaming. A half hour on video chat. A total of six hours a day, which is just about all their daily leisure time. Any balance left is utilized watching the now more boring than other technologies thing called TV. Now, this isn't a matter of just say, hey, I've got an opinion. Let me throw it out there. Hartford Health. Hartford Health. They say, listen, watch out for pornography. Recent studies indicate 90%, 90%, 9 out of 10 kids have viewed porn online and 10% admit to daily use. And a large, a large bit of that increases because of the smartphone usage that we allow them, we allow them to have. Uh, the internet has made pornography exposure much more common among kids and teens by making it more available and affordable. The, the top porn site, Pornhub, the third biggest bandwidth consuming company behind Google and Netflix, Pornhub has more daily visits than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. I mean, we got a problem, y'all. And research demonstrates that parents, us, we folk, are for the most part unaware of our children's porn usage. We have no idea. With half of parents unaware their teens had seen pornography and teens having seen up to 10 times, 10 times more pornography than their parents actually believe they've seen. So parents especially underestimated their teens' exposure to extreme content like violent porn, which is just as easy to access as traditional pornography. So this, this, this thing just keeps going on and on. I mean, it's, but the thing is, it's something we can do something about. 
And we need to because, listen, academically, test scores have taken a significant dive since the era of multiple screens entered family life, especially writing, reading. I mean, these things lag way behind the previous generation by significant margins. There was a study done by eighth graders that found the relative risk of being unhappy was served by time spent on TV, video chat, computer games, texting, social networking websites, and the internet. The last three putting teens at substantial risk of unhappiness, and the last three are, hey, texting, social networking websites, and the internet. Now, let me just ask, you: we put this technology in front of our kids, we let them have these iPhones, what if you knew it came down to this, that the more they have that smartphone in the hand, the less happy they are. If you took it out of their hands, they'd be more happy. Would you still want them to have an iPhone? Still want them to have a smartphone? Still want them to have video chat or computer games or, or social networking websites? If it made them more unhappy? I, I fear there's too many of us are saying, yeah, well, whatever. There's a bevy of Facebook studies that find the same thing. The more you use Facebook, the lower your mental health and life satisfaction. The less you interact with friends in person, and when you interact with, you know, friends in person, your mental health and life satisfaction goes up. So we kind of got to decide, y'all, if social network sites cause unhappiness, loneliness, and depression, is it worth it? These are kids we're talking about. So Gene Twenge, again, this great book called iGen, says that Study after study shows that screen activities are linked to more loneliness and depression. Non-screen activities are linked to less loneliness and less depression. So why do you let your kid sit in front of screens or have a screen in front of the face or carry a screen with them everywhere they go? It makes them more lonely, more depressed. Twin says there's no, it's no small concern because studies working in the same vein indicate that the more screen time a kid has, the more they run the risk of suicide. And it should be noted that running in the other direction of positive outcomes is a child's participation in these things. Remember, we used to do these things. Y'all remember when you were kids? Sports, exercise, religious service, print media, homework, in-person social interaction work. If you do those things, you have a far greater chance of running smack dab into happiness. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Wesley family. John and Charles Wesley had a, a mother called Susanna. And Susanna had some pretty good advice to John Wesley. She says, whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes off the relish, relish of spiritual things, whatever increases the authority of your mind over, of your body over mind, that thing for you is sin. That thing for you is sin, whatever it is. Let me just say this. I, I, uh, I was in Memphis one morning for a presentation on discipleship in the home. This particular group met, by the way, at 5.45 a.m. And there I was and I don't know. I'm, I'm probably talking to 100, 150, 200. I can't really tell that early in the morning. Bunch of, bunch of, bunch of people in a room. And so I went across some discipleship home stuff. And I mentioned this, some of this about TV and, 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 and smartphones. 
So a guy came up and said, listen, it's any way we can have some breakfast together. So he took me out for breakfast. He said, you know, you talk about television, but my kid has one of those smartphones now. And this is a few years ago when they're kind of new. And everything you could get on a television, they can now get on their phones. I mean, it's insidious. So I said, well, who pays for the phone? He said, I do. Well, that's your easy answer then. He said, what do you mean? Well, it's really your phone. And you already know there's no advantage to it, spiritually or intellectually. In fact, it's detrimental, spiritually or intellectually, for him to have that iPhone. So I should just take it from him? Well, sure, after a kind and spiritual explanation, yeah, take it from him. But what, I mean, what happens if uh, he starts stuttering a little bit, trying to think of what's the best possible reason to have one of these things? He finally came up with this. What happens if he's in an emergency somewhere and he needs to call? I said, man, come on. You and I lived our entire lives without a cell phone in our pockets. I had the feeling you, you and I are okay. He'll be okay too. But let's just say he gets in trouble somewhere. He needs to call. You know what he's going to do? What? He's going to look at his friend and say, hey, Chris, let me use your phone. We both laughed. But something predicted. That should have been predictable anyway in the moment. Happened. After he got done chuckling a little bit, he starts tearing up. Turns out there were tears of gratitude. He grabbed my arm and said, thank you, thank you, thank you. You saved my family. It was dawning on him that he had power in his family. It's not every kid's right, divine right, to have a smartphone or any other kind of technology that a parent knows, knows is bad for them and bad for their pursuit of God. So I'm just going to tell you, one of the best parenting decisions we ever made was to make sure the regular viewing of television and the use of whatever technology that Silicon, the Silicon Valley comes up with to grab the attention of our young disciples called the kids in our family, it should be severely, if not wholly, limited. The weight of the data is overwhelming, folks. Take action on it on behalf of your kids and the kingdom. Now, I was in a class the other day and got done with that. I said, any questions? And Paul says, I just got a comment. I say, yeah, what's your comment, Paul? Paul said, uh, well, it doesn't work if the parents aren't going to take it seriously too. I mean, if the parents have iPhones, if the parents are watching TV, if the parents are addicted to sports, if the, if the parents just have to have all this new technology themselves, there's no way you can win the day with your kids on this issue. And I said to him, great point. And next time I talk about this, Paul, I'll mention you. All right. It's a wrap. It's been an honor to have you listening to life changing discipleship with Matt freedom and check out our Facebook page, life changing discipleship. Check out our books at amazon.com. Type in Matt Friedman into the search engine there and see what's offered. And always, always tell others about our podcast. And remember, my wife thanks you, my daughter thanks you, my sons and their wives thank you, and I can assure you that I thank you for listening to Life Changing Discipleship today. Love God, live clean, keep the faith, make disciples, and God bless you, dear friends. We'll see you back here real soon.